Let loose the Kraken! Welcome to the Ray Harryhausen Podcast, the show dedicated to the life, career and films of a special effects titan. Join us as we host in-depth discussions about the work, influences and legacies of this uniquely talented filmmaker. Brought to you by the Ray and Diana Harryhausen Foundation, we will be delving into Ray's archive to bring a unique insight into his work, including exclusive audio from the man himself. We will be joined by special guests for retrospectives, exclusive announcements and competitions so this podcast is a must listen all fans of the world of ray harryhausen animation and classic filmmaking Hello and welcome to this very special 35th anniversary podcast for Clash of the Titans probably the best known and perhaps best loved of Ray Harryhausen's films and of course his final film his last film um, in this podcast we're going to hear some very special uh, clips from Ray Harryhausen himself from the unheard director's commentary track if you will that I recorded with Ray back in 2012 um, we're also going to be uh, chatting about some aspects of the film the film processes some of the casting decisions that were made in this classic film the toys from Mattel um, and the controversial story around that, some of the uh, merchandise that was available and how the film is recognised today as being a bit of a classic. I'm very pleased to say I'm being joined by Connor Heaney, our collections manager. Hi Connor. Hello John and I know how much you've been looking forward to this. I know how much Clash of the Titans means to you. Our first ever conversation I remember you spoke about going to see Clash of the Titans at length so I'm looking forward to hearing some of your personal recollections about seeing this film as a youngster and what it's meant to you over the years. Yes indeed I in fact the day I went to see it was the day of Princess Diana's wedding so after seeing the the wedding on television along with the rest of the country I um, got on a bus with my parents my brother and we went to um, the local cinema Um, I think it was the local ABC cinema to see uh, Clash of the Titans and the build-up had been significant. So in 1981, no internet, um, only the chatter of schoolboys, Starburst magazine, and the uh, US equivalent, Starlog magazine. So if you could save up your pocket money and buy that magazine, you'd, you'd get an insight into what was coming. But true to form, as with all of Ray's films, very little was given away. So some information about the plot, some information about the monsters but no information about the special effects and the special techniques that Ray used. And and in this final film, of course, yes, the stop-motion animation, but there are some um, departures from Ray's traditional working practices. He had some people work with him. And also in the technology, you know, Ray moved things up a gear again for this film. So a bigger budget, a bigger cast, and in some cases a bigger headache for this movie. Okay, John. Well, before we get started, I'll just do a quick plot summary for Clash of the Titans. After his daughter, Danae, gives birth to a son which she calls Perseus by the god Zeus, King Acrisius of Argos has both cast into the sea in a casket. Zeus saves them and commands Poseidon to unleash the Kraken and destroy Acrisius and Argos. 
Years pass and Perseus grows to manhood. Thetis, angered when Zeus turns her son Calibos into a misshapen beast, transports Perseus to the city of Joppa, where he meets Amon. After receiving three gifts, a helmet, a sword and a shield, from the gods, he travels to Joppa, where he falls in love with Andromeda, daughter of Queen Cassiopeia, whose suitors are required to answer impossible riddles or be burned at the stake. Using his helmet, which makes him invisible, Perseus sets out to solve the latest riddle and sees Andromeda carried off during the night by a giant vulture. With Ammon's help, Perseus captures and tames Pegasus, last of the winged horses, and flies after Andromeda to the lair of Calibos. Perseus learns the answer to the riddle, but as he leaves, Calibos sees footprints in the dust and, during a fright with Perseus, Calibos's hand is cut off. At the betrothal of Perseus and Andromeda, Cassiopeia foolishly declares her daughter more beautiful than Thetis herself, and the vengeful goddess orders Andromeda to be sacrificed to the Kraken. Having only a few days to seek a means of defeating the Kraken, Perseus seeks out the Stygian witches, with the aid of Bubu, a mechanical owl sent by Athena. The three witches advise Perseus to kill Medusa, the last of the Gorgons, who lives on the Isle of the Dead. Paying Charon to row him there, Perseus defeats the two-headed dog Dioscilos and then cuts off the head of Medusa, which can turn living things into stone. On the return journey, Calabos releases the blood of Medusa's head, which mutates into three giant scorpions that Perseus and his men slay, along with Calabos. As the kraken rises from the sea, Perseus uses Medusa's head to turn the creature to stone. Perseus and Andromeda are reunited and are immortalised in the stars by Zeus. May the beautiful princess and the jealous tyrant and you and your mother thrown into the sea and the destruction of Argus. Why, it's been a most popular story here for the past 20 years. I myself wrote a poem about it. It's rather, rather moving, as I recall. It's interesting you place it in some historical context there in terms of what else was happening at the time because in terms of special effects in films it's interesting to consider the budget for this. Ray's previous films had had far smaller budgets. The Golden Voyage of Sinbad, and I was, I was shocked to read this, Golden Voyage of Sinbad had a budget of less than a million dollars. That that was significantly ramped up for Sinbad and the Eye of the Tiger which had a budget of three million dollars. But at that point in cinema history all of a sudden special effects films really start to be very costly affairs. So Star Wars was 11 million, Star Trek, the, the motion picture Star Trek, 35 million, Superman the movie, 55 million. It's the, the cost of these films was escalating and it got to a point where really for Ray to make another film, the budget involved had to be significantly higher. So Clash of the Titans came in at a, a respectable $15 million production cost, which was, I think, to that point, more expensive than all of Ray's previous films put together, and that gives you a sense of the the magnitude of the task at hand. No, definitely. You know the the story that was written, incidentally, by Maggie Smith's husband, uh, Beverly Cross. Um, the story demanded a bigger budget. It was a it was more than just a travel to a foreign land and meeting a few monsters on the way. The amount of scenes, if you like, the amount of special effects moments and minutes on screen probably would combine all of the three Sinbad films together. Um, And as such, it demanded a a higher calibre of cast. So, of course, the grace and the good from the acting community were were attracted to the project and 
probably the most famous figurehead of them all, Sir Laurence Olivier, who played Zeus, and, and wonderfully so. Um, but I think the pressure on this particular production gave rise to a decision from Ray to retire from filmmaking because, as you rightly said, Connor, special effects films were really in the ascendance now. You know, Star Wars was the film that changed the way summer movies were marketed and the way family and children's films were seen as money earners and money spinners. If we just roll back quickly to the beginning of the 70s, the biggest box office hits in the 70s before Star Wars were The Godfather, so, you know, a film which would have been for for adults only and very violent. Uh, The Exorcist, again, a violent horror film. Um, And The Omen, of course, another sort of very sort of violent and visceral sort of project. It's only when Star Wars came along and then there was a there was a whole kind of flood of special effects films and of course Jaws before Star Wars. So when Star Wars indicated that you could base your summer schedule and your marketing budgets around one particular enterprise that was family friendly, you could go and see on your own, you could go and see with your mum and dad, it changed the business model. And lots of filmmakers sort of criticised George Lucas and Steven Spielberg in later years for changing the business model for filmmaking. But it meant that what was previously, um, in Ray's case, films for the half term, so re-release of, say, Fox and the Hound or The Aristocat and a Sinbad film, they would be half term fodder. Now they were tentpole marquee projects for the summer. The summer is the the period when studios can, can make up for the losses they've had in other periods of the year and it redefines what we see as as now not a children's film but a family adventure so ray kind of shifted from making films that were perhaps for children to a family audience a much bigger budget columbia pictures who had been the mainstay financier and distributor for all of ray's films simply weren't able to or, or refused to um, to supply the budget, the $15 million needed to bring this magnum opus to the screen. So Charles Schneer and Ray went to different studios and interestingly they, they struck upon a deal with Orion Pictures who made, amongst other things, um, Silence of the Lambs and the Terminator series and lots of other wonderful films. They're no longer in existence but occasionally you'll see their logo on a reissue of an old film. However, they had one stipulation. They looked through the cast and they said, hmm, Perseus, we have somebody in mind for that. Conan, the actor who played Conan in Conan the Destroyer and Conan the Barbarian, Arnold Schwarzenegger. They said, if you can cast Mr. Schwarzenegger as Perseus, we have a deal. That, to me, is very interesting because I know that Ray wasn't keen on that idea at all, was he? He wasn't, no. It wasn't going to be a muscle man movie in that sense. He wanted... We have a fine calibre of actors that are, are gathering for this project and it it would seem odd, perhaps, to cast someone like Arnold Schwarzenegger, who's a fine actor and does great work and who, incidentally, would have been very good in Clash of the Titans, but it would have brought a whole different dynamic and a different feel and vibe to the film. It's interesting what you say about Arnold Schwarzenegger because I'm a huge fan of Arnold and if you read his biography... He grew up on a lot of the old Italian sword and sandals films, as they're called now, with uh, Reg Park and Steve Reeves. 
playing Hercules and all these mythological legends. But these were exactly the kind of films that Ray Harryhausen was trying to move away from. So the films that Arnold Schwarzenegger grew up loving were exactly the kind of films that Ray wanted to distance himself from when he was making Jason and the Argonauts and and similar movies. So it's quite funny to see that these two strands of uh, fantasy were where there's one aspect where it's uh, all muscle men and big bodies, and then there's the other side, which is a, a lot more true to the to the legendary setting, which, which showcases the creatures and the fantastic mythological beings. It's uh, probably appropriate that the two never were to meet. I think maybe Arnie had very different ideas about what a fantasy film should look like, um, as you see in Conan the Barbarian, which is a fantastic film, but it's a lot more grim and probably a lot more severe than something that, that Ray Harryhausen would make. Uh, so it's interesting that the two were, were mooted as being merged together, but probably for the best that Arnold wasn't cast in Clash of the Titans. So they, they respectfully declined the offer and found a home at uh, MGM, Metro Goldwyn-Mayer. Um, but interestingly there, there was another casting decision to make which would change the film and perhaps um, in some ways set in cement what is now considered to be the sort of the buddy duo between Perseus, played by Harry Hamlin, and Burgess Meredith, who's the the owner of the theatre. That role was originally cast as Sir John Gielgud, but Burgess Meredith was under contract to MGMUA for the Rocky films. They very much wanted a a recognisable US actor in that part, and Burgess Meredith, Rocky's trainer, became the, um, as it were, the confidant for Perseus. And I think he was a pretty good casting choice, Connor, do you? Yes, I mean, I am a huge fan of the Rocky films. I love Burgess Meredith, I love Mickey, the trainer in Rocky, the cantankerous old man, that you know, that he's, he's fantastic in those films and uh, really pleased to see him in Clash of the Titans. So it's really interesting that Burgess Meredith's status on the back of the Rocky films really had him headhunted for this role as the poet in Clash of the Titans, Amon. Now, Burgess Meredith, there are some fantastic stories about him on set. Um, by all accounts, he was just a really wonderful character. I know that he was a favourite of Ray's. He, he was always uh, really pleased with having Burgess Meredith. He thought he was a really wonderful addition to the cast. It's very different as well. With all these Shakespearean actors, it's very different to have this uh, kind of elvish uh, American chap. Burgess Meredith had been acting since the 1920s, so he was pretty elderly by this point in the late 70s sort of 1980 time uh, but there's there's wonderful stories about him behind the scenes actually in the latest edition of cinema retro magazine that has a, an interview with uh, keith hampshire who was the stills photographer for clash of the titans and he's got some wonderful stories about how what what character burgess meredith was how generous he was what a wonderful sense of humor he has but on the other hand the director of the film desmond davis um he he said he found Burgess to be slightly cantankerous and I love that as well I love the idea that on set all of a sudden this lovely man turns into Mickey from Rocky and is, is a bit of a handful is a bit more sort of a feisty and difficult to deal with it sounds to me like it was more mischievous than bad tempered and he was just kind of testing the director but it's just it's great to hear these uh, these casting decisions and what it was like behind the scenes with this, this these wonderful actors and actresses no definitely and uh, and cinema retro magazine is a it's a marvellous magazine. A big thanks to Mark Morstan for um, for being in touch and being a friend of the foundation with um, with your contacts there and with that information. It's interesting, Harry Hamlin and Arnold Schwarzenegger weren't the only two people in consideration. You know, um, Hamlin was an unknown at the time, 
so it was quite a risk for them to go with him. But other people in consideration were Malcolm McDowell, Michael York, Richard Chamberlain. So you can see they're sort of cut from the Hamlin mode. So uh, romantic leads, but who have something about them and who have sort of a, a thought process going on. But I think now we're going to hear from Ray Harryhausen himself about how strong the cast is, particularly Laurence Olivier. Release the Kraken. But we had a wonderful cast, and I'm grateful for them, that we... Uh were able to get Laurence Olivier as the Zeus. Who else could play Zeus but oh, Laurence yeah. Olivier? <laughs> we had a wonderful cast there. Give Perseus your arm. It is all-knowing, all-seeing. Give it to him. It is my wish, my command. So fabulous to hear Ray's comments there about the casting, Connor, yes? Yeah, I think it's just, you can hear how proud he was to have Laurence Olivier on set. As he said, who else could play Zeus? And uh, Laurence Olivier is obviously a legend of that kind of Shakespearean role, and he really takes command. There was obviously previous Zeus in uh, Jason and the Argonauts, but they were played very differently. Um, And I like that twinkle in his eye. The way that he plays Zeus is just fantastic. So this film now is very different well, in many aspects, but in the working practices of Ray Harryhausen as a sole animator, working on his own with the creatures and miniature rear projection. Very different this time round, uh, Connor. You've, you've looked delved into the archives now and looked into the information that we have here at the Ray and Dinah Harryhausen Foundation. What, what have you found out about uh, the sort of unique partnerships on, the, on this project? As you've mentioned before, John, the amount of animation in this film far exceeded what had been previously expected and it doesn't matter how much money you throw at the film's budget there's only one Ray Harryhausen there's only 24 hours in a day this film took almost three years to make and this was Ray working more or less non-stop and for certain scenes he would have a little cot next to his studio so he'd he'd be literally sleeping getting up working going back to bed again even so despite despite Ray's best efforts he required a couple of assistants for this film now I have I have to admit something I have to thank our Twitter following from a previous episode our episode of 1 million years BC because we received some constructive criticism and that was from a fan who had heard me admit that I'd never seen the follow-up to 1 million years BC which is called when dinosaurs ruled the earth I actually subsequently went went out and it was on my to-do list I finally got around to watching it recently my wife doesn't believe me that I'm watching all these cave girl epics with uh, bikinis and whatnot as, as work-related research, but there you go. But that was uh, an animator named Jim Danforth, who had done a lot of stop-motion work throughout the 1970s, and who had known Ray actually all the way back to 1958, when they first met on the set of Seventh Voyage of Sinbad. And he very much was an animator that, that Ray admired, and was Ray's first choice as assistant. If anyone was going to work with Ray... It was going to be Jim Danforth. So he was the first choice. He, ironically enough, given what we've just been spoken about, at the time he was working on an early version of Conan the Barbarian, the, the John Milius film that ended up starring Arnold Schwarzenegger and becoming a huge success. But at the time, the film was in development hell and, and Jim Danforth was working on some very early models for the for the movie. Uh, so he was unavailable. So um, Ray had to cast his net slightly wider. So he found uh, another animator based in London, a much younger chap named Steve Archer. He impressed uh, Ray by animating some of the models, I think it was Trog, from the Sinbad and the Eye of the Tiger. Ray was so impressed that he was then hired as an animator too. So Ray had an assistant for the first time. 
But of course, this being Clash of the Titans, Steve Archer soon injured his hand, uh, so it was back to square one for Ray. But at this point, Jim Danforth had become available. The Conan film was had kind of fallen through for him. So Jim Danforth then came to the fore and Ray, for the first time in his career, had two assistants, which must have been a little unsettling for him, given that he'd worked solo for so long. I guess so, but I mean, when I spoke to Ray about the, just the, the I don't want to call it the burden of work, but it was a burden. You think about um, Pegasus, he said to me when he came into the studio some morning and looked at the horse, the amount of work that's needed to make those scenes work, the gallop that needs to be smooth and synchronised, and the wing movements as well that need to look graceful, a frame out here or there, and the whole thing's ruined. So it's quite a monotonous cyclical movement if we think about the way the horse gallops and the wings flap. Beautiful and graceful. Jim Danforth took um, charge of some of those sequences, and Steve Archer looked after Bubo the Owl, the beloved Bubo the Owl, who I absolutely adore. I think he's fabulous, a little clockwork miracle. So I don't think they were working with each other as much as alongside so it was great for Ray to maybe discuss in 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 rushes or dailies as uh, as Americans call them um the sequences so I when I spoke to Ray he remembered those times fondly and I think he probably if he did the sequel to Clash of the Titans Force of the Trojans which could have happened in 1984 but didn't I think he might have paired up with um Steve and Jim again because I think he remembers the time as being, certainly the the working relationship, as a very positive one. And I think technically it takes nothing away from Ray that um, these two animators worked under effectively their their great hero. And and had Ray had the chance to bring a third person in, perhaps Phil Tippett, who was doing splendid work on Dragon Slayer, The Empire Strikes Back and went on, of course, to have a fabulous career with Steven Spielberg on Jurassic Park. So um, it's quite a small pool of people to choose from when it comes to stop motion animators for motion pictures. You know, you you really it's like um, you could fit them all into one small minibus. So it's interesting that it's such a small world that Ray was lucky to have had these people to come on board, I guess. And I think also Steve worked with the um, two-headed dog as well at Medusa's temple so little sequences were farmed out um, but some of the animation crossed over so they weren't exclusively done by these people so there is a bit of crossover in some areas and I think through some of the logs that we have in the foundation's archive I think we can almost pinpoint shot for shot so perhaps in the future we might do that for um, well potentially a future publication because there's been a lot of interest in us doing a book just based on one particular film and we certainly have the backup materials and unseen images to do a book just on Clash of the Titans or just on Mysterious Island. So so who knows? I mean, we, we're finding things all the time because um, when we think of other aspects of the film, we found out in recent years that the famous Bond composer, John Barry, who'd won many Academy Awards for his beautiful music, he actually submitted a test tape um, to do the score for Clash of the Titans, which was originally, which was finally scored by Lawrence Rosenthal. Did you know about that, Connor? I didn't know about that until very recently, until we started doing the research for this show. Now, it hasn't been uncovered yet, but it'll be in the archive somewhere, um, because I know that Ray had it stashed away. Um, so I've been looking through the, the music in the film archive recently to see if I can find it, and that... 
that what a fascinating artifact that would be. John Barry's score for for Clash of the Titans. By all accounts, Ray wasn't too impressed with it. Uh, didn't think it fit. But still, you know, a very unique piece of memorabilia that would be, and it would be fascinating to hear what John Barry had in mind, and and maybe try and try and postulate what what Ray didn't like about it or why he think it didn't fit. But in terms of Clash of the Titans, as you say, there is a wealth of material from the archive, specifically, I suppose, because of the fact that it was Ray's final film. None of the models were cannibalized. We still have everything from the film, so nothing was taken as as many of Ray's models were. Um, for example, Calabos, the famous Calabos from Clash of the Titans, is actually a little bit of a composite because he has the body of Trog from Sinbad and the Eye of the Tiger. There's also a leg taken from the Cyclops from the Seventh Voyage of Sinbad, which in turn had been created from the model of the Emir from 20 million miles to Earth. So this gives you an idea. That's just one one model. I know there were a couple of Calabos models, but the, these were really made up from a lot of the older models just because of the fact that armatures were so difficult to, to create and, and to have manufactured. So the fact that it's Ray's final film means that None of the models were destroyed afterwards, uh, so they've all. We still have them all. The exception being, in terms of conservation, um, the the Kraken and the Pegasus model were glazed with glycerine because they, those those are two creatures which ended up going underwater during the film, and to add to the effect of coming out of the water, they were they were coated in glycerine to give them that kind of wet look, um, and this this had a, a terrible chemical reaction with the latex model. So they, they, they're, they're still around and they're still in relatively good shape, but uh, the glycerine caused a reaction which has caused them to become very sticky over time. Um, and I know that uh, the Foundation's official conservator, Alan Friswell, did some fantastic work on Pegasus in particular because um, just just with the, the effects, I guess, with the raised laboratory <laughs> with all these chemicals, um, it's hard to know what effect it's going to have over time latex and other chemicals mixing together and and those were two that suffered from the from the filmmaking process yes that's right i mean it's always um it's that ongoing task of looking at everything and hoping that we've done the right thing by conserving them and preserving them for uh, for future generations um we're going to hear a quick clip now of of ray chatting about the score for clash of the titans Oh yes, music. I think he did a marvelous job on this film, scoring it. It's a different, entirely different than Bernard Herrmann or Nicholas Rocha would do. We went through several people to score the film originally, even John Williams. But this is not the type of picture that John Williams would score, I don't think. He bowed out. uh, I think he suggested Rosenthal. It's an excellent score, I think, for this type of picture. So clearly, Ray loved the score for this film. He he worked extensively with composers like Bernard Herrmann, um, Laurie Johnson for First Men in the Moon. So music for Ray's films was almost a... Um, well, it was almost another character for the film because Ray would listen to film music when he was animating in the studio. So um, the idea that, if you will, that John Barry's score didn't meet the cut was no reflection on John Barry's marvellous work. And in fact, when we think about John Barry and science fiction, his score for King Kong, 1976, um, very good score. Film was received just okay. Um, 
The Black Hole, 1979. I love that film. I'm about the only person who does. Um, I'm sure there's a few of you out there that also like that film. It tanked when it came out. It was a big bomb for Disney. Um, Howard the Duck, John Barry, um, 1985-86, something like that. Again, another interesting score. The film didn't do that well. Um, And Star Crash, of course, as well, with Caroline Monroe in 79. So John Barry has a kind of a checkered history when it comes to science fiction. His, His Bond history and his dramas, such as Dances with Wolves are, are sort of a more secure territory. So, you know, perhaps Ray made the right decision in, in, in going with Lawrence Rosenthal. I think he's it's certainly Rosenthal's best score. And it was recently re-released as a, as a double-disc CD, uh, Connor, wasn't it? We heard some of it here on the introduction to this podcast. Yes, Entrada Records, uh, not just as a double CD, but as a double vinyl as well, with, uh, with a gatefold picture art. Um, and it's fantastic. Two, two, well, four sides of vinyl, two discs, um, the full soundtrack plus outtakes. Uh, to me, it's probably, and just just in my opinion, probably up there with uh, Bernard Herrmann's soundtrack for the Seventh Voyage of Sinbad in terms of its iconic nature. It just fits the film perfectly. It's got the the opening sequence, which is so so heroic sounding, and then throughout the movie. The, the different moods and the different atmosphere that the music creates is just perfect for the ebbing and flowing of the scenes and it, it fits the pace of the film perfectly and uh, uh, yeah, a fantastic job uh, it's, another, it's another great piece and I would recommend anybody who, who, hasn't, who hasn't sought out to get this, um, this double CD or double vinyl because it's fantastic listening it's, it's, it really puts you in, a, in an inspired mood and Ray had worked with a lot of uh, amazing composers, uh, Bernard Herrmann being the obvious choice of having done four of Ray's films, but also Miklos Roja, who did the legendary soundtrack for Thief of Baghdad, amongst many others. Um, but on the on the soundtrack to Golden Voyage of Sinbad, uh, Miklos Roja was a bit disappointed because of the budget restraint there. As I said earlier, that film was made for less than a million dollars, and uh, he was he was only given half an orchestra to work with and was a, was a little disappointed at not being able to kind of spread his wings in that fashion. So it's interesting, again, when we're talking about the budget for Clash of the Titans, Lawrence Rosenthal was basically given his pick, saying, well, what orchestra do you want to work with? And he, I think he felt a bit cheeky, I think, according to the interview, he said, uh, how about the Laudan Sympathy Orchestra? And they went, yeah, of course, on you go. So he was really able to express himself to the fullest degree, and it, it paid off dividends, because it's a wonderful soundtrack. I think so, you know, and if... You know, to give Charles Schneer his his due, you know, when you're working with very small budgets and the studios are asking you to produce such a spectacle, the scoring of the music is one of the very last things that's done, often weeks before a film is released. So once a film is shot, and particularly a film like this, it's shot maybe uh, two years later, the, the final edit with all of the special effects and creatures is cut together. Then you go to a dubbing stage to um, to add all the various sound effects that are needed the score is then produced and you go to a final mix then with the score so of course there's not much money left you know when you get to the end of a production there's there's sometimes no money left so it might have meant a smaller orchestra with Miklos Rocha or the same size orchestra but not with Miklos Rocha and that might have been the uh, the biggest travesty had they had to say no to that composer. So it's it's tricky. The producer's loss is always a rather sad and uh, and bitter one because people often blame the producer for being tight with the money. But without looking at the purse strings, the next film 
might not have happened. So all of Ray's films were a stepping stone to the next one. So it's quite glorious to have such a wonderful score. And I think it befits the film, as they say. But uh, the film wasn't without its controversies. When we think about um, the censors and the issues around violence and sexualized imagery, the sequence of Medusa um, was a particularly thorny one. So let, let's go to, to Ray first talking about the Medusa and how he lit the sequence for animating. What can we do to help you? Uh, I need your advice. Then you must come a little closer. I had a big wheel that I put in front of my lights that lit the model and each frame of film I would turn it a little more with different colored cellophane in it with holes, narrative perspectives. So each frame of film, yes. You'd move it about uh, three quarters of an inch so that she would look like a part of the... Otherwise, she wouldn't look like she was part of the set background. Who has the eye? I do. Give it to me now. I want to be the first to see him. It's fascinating now because that's one of the most iconic sequences, isn't it, Connor? The Medusa. I saw it recently as a special screening at the Cinema Museum and there were some children in the audience and, of course, Medusa comes on. They literally slumped in their seats. They didn't want to be seen. Um, They were genuinely scared. And even now, the hairs on the back of my neck stand up as she kind of um, crawls her way into the the temple. What, What do you remember when you first saw that sequence? Well... When you think about the Medusa scene, it's almost as though you're crystallising Ray's lifetime of work into two minutes. You know, he'd been he'd been animating for over forty years at that point, and it's just it's so incredible the the music and the effects and his the atmosphere that he builds up. The model itself was probably Ray's most complex armature to that point, and it just is everything that we love about Ray Harryhausen. Just concentrated into this one sequence now the the clip that we've just heard with Ray discussing the lighting to me that's one of the most incredible aspects of the sequence the fact that Medusa is lit up by flames because it's something you might not notice at first and that's the whole point you're watching it and you think oh she's just being reflected by the flames and then you think afterwards well hang on a second how does that work because she's not there with the live action she's being animated step by step using the the dynamation process so how how is uh, Ray reflecting the, the flames that's flickering on the on the pillars and the walls and the other characters and to me that's just so impressive and it's one of the things that draws you in it, it makes it more than a set piece it's, it makes Medusa part of the action and really it's I, I know that Ray's best friend and lifelong ally Ray Bradbury described it as, as Ray's crown and glory as you know one of his just his ultimate scenes and to this day, it's it's just it's spine tingling. The the detail in the character's face, the, the fact that the, the the character can be zoomed in so close up, and you can see the look in her eyes and that that famous snarl, and the way that she drags herself across the ground. We've got another clip here where Ray discusses where he got this idea for for Medusa, the way she she moved herself around the room. It came from a much earlier source. I remembered an old film I saw when I was very young uh, that Todd Browning made called Freaks. And uh, uh, they had some people without uh, legs who could drag themselves along. And that went through my mind when I made the entrance. So uh, I kept the snake quality in her by having to pull herself along with uh, her arms. 
but she also crawled like a snake. Oh, the rattle, I, I wanted to give it a rattlesnakes uh, so that the sound department could uh, make her presence known by just a rattle. And uh, you have to think of those things. And I, uh, I actually, the Medusa in the original story never had a bow and arrow. I took that from Diana, the legend of Diana. <laughs> So that was Ray speaking about the animation of Medusa and how, how she pulls herself across the room. I guess it, it's up there with the skeleton sequence from Jason and the Argonauts for just sheer iconic. Someone had never heard of Ray Harryhausen and, and they had five minutes to spare. You wouldn't describe his career, you wouldn't, you wouldn't use words to describe what, what genius he was. You would just show him that scene and it, it would click instantly. Now, John, when you went to see that as a child, what effect did that have on you? Because it's still terrifying now, but seeing it in a darkened cinema for the first time and not knowing all the details and all the special effects like we do now, how did you feel when you saw Medusa? I was already scared by the two-headed dogs. So, you know, I was already right on the edge of my nerves. So when this sequence came in, which wasn't fast, there wasn't dramatic music, there wasn't people being chased down corridors, it was really interesting because it's a slower pace. It's a more mature animation. You know, the dread is built up by her slow movement across. Um, she's quite dominant as she kind of slithers across the floor. The music arches up with her back as she lifts herself forward and pulls the bow from, from behind. So she's quite a large creature. So although she comes in on her hands and knees, it's that moment as she, she pitches up forward and there's the, the music that arches back with her. Very dramatic. And you could almost hear a pin drop. And even that recent screening, similar, similar again, as people were shocked. It's interesting Ray references uh, Todd Browning's Freaks because that film was banned and not for the reasons that people might think. Um, that film was banned at the time because it was felt that, um, quite shockingly, that showing disabled people on screen would be upsetting to able-bodied people and that able-bodied people going to a cinema would perhaps be upset by seeing disabled people um, being flaunted on the cinema screen, which is certainly not my words, and certainly we've we've come a long way since then. But Clash of the Titans had its own problems with the censors, because the the figure of Medusa, as we see her in the temple, she's not wearing anything. She's she's um, scales, if you will. She's snake scales all over her body, from the top of her head to the tip of her tail. But you can see her 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 breasts. And, and those breasts have nipples, albeit they're covered in snake scales. So the American censors were quite concerned that a film that's available to a family audience effectively shows a topless woman. So American censors were talking about cropping in those sequences so you don't see her upper, her upper body. Meanwhile, over in Europe, they were concerned about something else. They were concerned that within that sequence, there is a very graphic, here's a spoiler coming for anyone who hasn't seen it, decapitation. So Medusa has her head cut off on screen by Harry Hamlin with a sword. Um, originally that was planned to be a sort of a frisbee cut where he throws the shield and it was going to cut her head off. But there was some dispute as to whether that would be the right thing. But it's a very graphic sequence. She, she flounders on the floor. The gunge all kind of soaks out from her neck and her tail is, 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 is kind of wagging away. Um, so a bit like when the head's cut off a chicken and it runs around the farmyard. It's, it's quite something to see, and yet that managed to get passed. So I'm not sure what deal or assurances were given um, 
by the filmmakers or by MGM. So MGM at this stage still had some some gravitas and I suspect had they made this for a much lower budget they may have been more constrained by what they could have shown. If we go all the way back to um, Jason the Argonaut some 50 years previously when the script was submitted to the censors because we used to submit scripts at that time to censors they said oh no you can't have this skeleton sequence at twilight or nighttime it would be much too terrifying for an audience you'll have it in bright daylight or not have it at all at that certificate so the skeleton sequence for Jason which was planned at night or at twilight um, had to be shot filmed and presented to us all in uh, in broad daylight so I wonder what that sequence would have looked like if it had been nighttime. Still as classic, but interestingly, Clash of the Titans survived the uh, the censors um, the censors scissors. So it's fascinating, isn't it, Connor? That in America they had an obsession with the sexualization of the monster, and in Europe, more concerned about the violence. It is pretty funny, as you say, that that's what they're concerned about. When two seconds later, there's a scene with Kensington gore pouring out of Medusa's neck. You know, five minutes after that, there's there's blood on the ground with maggots coming out of it. None of, none of that is a concern. Decapitation is not a problem, but the sight of a, a woman's chest, even even a, a snake woman, uh, was was considered perhaps to be too too corrupting and too sexualized. I guess it's a case of priorities. There, I suppose there might have been concern. There's there are some other nude scenes in the films, very tasteful nude scenes, um, reflective of classical culture, where. Let's face it. Everybody walked around naked. That was uh, that was the way it was, and, and Ray didn't quite include that in his films. But there was there were a, a few other scenes of brief nudity, and uh, I suppose this was something else that might have worried the censors. I guess so. And the, the Judy Bowker gets out of the bath, or her character certainly does. Uh, she refused to do the nude scene from behind, so a, a body double for her bottom was used for that sequence. Um, so yes, no, it's interesting. Attitudes to nudity and, and so on have changed over the years. Um, but that wasn't the only controversy f- of the film. There was um, a controversy that was kept uh, well, quiet or secret because MGM um, were marketing this as a family film. But um, it's a matter of public record now, so I'm not actually saying anything I shouldn't. But Ursula Andress, the beautiful actress from, from, uh, from Dr. No, who was the original first choice as the cave girl for one million years BC. She's in Clash of the Titans. She only famously has one line in the film, but she's very effective. She actually had an affair with Harry Hamlin during the production, and they had a child together, if you don't mind. They certainly didn't. Well, no, I know that uh, I've read interviews of Harry Hamlin, and he's very proud of his son. I think his name's Dimitri. Uh, Dimitri Hamlin, who was, who was a result of his casting in Clash of the Titans. Ursula Andress play, playing Aphrodite, the goddess of love. There's obviously some chemistry on set there, and uh, it's, it's interesting to know that a child was born as a result of the, the casting in that film. Ursula Andress was actually originally um, mooted for the role that Raquel Welsh played in One Million Years BC, so it's nice to see her taking her place in, in Ray Harryhausen history, even though she did only get one line. Uh, it's appropriate enough that she's one of the, one of the goddesses in that film. Yes, she is, and she plays it magnificently. I think she's a wonderful actress and a, and a wonderful lady in that film. Um, so when the film was being made, there were some liberties taken with the various creatures. Of course, the Kraken is part of Nordic legend and, and not necessarily Greek mythology. So knowingly, filmmakers bring together, if if we will, sort of convenient plot lines that work best for drama and, and certainly are not meant to reflect um, 
literature and, and mythology as, as recognised. Um, but there were quite a few um, critics who pointed out inaccuracies in, um, in Ray's version of Clash of the Titans. So let's just hear what Ray has to say about that. Who are you? Perseus, prince and heir to the kingdom of Argos. We had to change it. And I was reading in that uh, FXRH, is made many years ago, of yeah. course, yeah. Uh, the one critic criticized because we didn't stick to the exact Greek legend and uh, they don't realize that their the legends can't be done as a, as a film straight without the audience walking out. <laughs> so you have to put certain things and restructure it and sometimes borrow from other legends to make a film that is suitable for an audience. But we have to manipulate uh, certain aspects of the legend in order to make a comprehensive movie that'll flow from one scene into the other. This would make a fine, heroic poem, you know. Or perhaps a play. Oh, don't worry, I won't leave you out. <laughs> I wonder, Connor, how much, from Ray's sort of tone there, how much that's played a part in him feeling it was time to, to step away as well from, from filmmaking. Well, I wonder about that. I sometimes wonder about people... At the time, classicists or historians who would criticise Ray's work because I think Ray Harryhausen did more than anybody to to popularise these classic myths of, of Jason and of uh, Perseus and the Gorgon's head. I'd say a large chunk of our Twitter following are now professors of, of archaeology or classicists or historians or people who just have an interest, Greek and Roman myths, directly because they grew up with Ray Harryhausen films. My my mum, for example, has a classics degree and she attributes that to watching Jason and the Argonauts when she was little. And there's so many others that are now, you know, scholars and academics in that field because they grew up watching Ray's films. So it's funny to think that people at that time would maybe criticise him for bringing classic mythology to a wider audience. And... It's as Ray says, you can't put you can't put the legend of Jason uh, or the legend of Perseus into a ninety minute movie or a tour movie because it wouldn't work. It would be too it would be indulgent, it wouldn't make any sense. These are long epics uh, that are, are sprawling and they just would not work as a movie. You need to tighten them up. And Ray's work of genius was doing that in a, a way that would attract people's interest and encourage them to explore more. It wasn't as though Ray hadn't done his research beforehand. Um, we at the foundation are lucky enough to have access to Ray's library. And believe me, it's extensive. There are so many books on classical myths and legends that Ray had studied and digested and then thought, you know, how can we get this? How can we portray these myths in a way that's going to attract the public? So it's funny to think that at the time he would have been criticised for something which has actually drawn people in to the discipline of classics and archaeology and history and Greek myth and legend. Um, I'm sure a lot of people know about Medusa and about all these other fantastic myths and legends because of Ray Harryhausen. Absolutely, you know, and often when a budget of a film is a certain size, you lend yourself to more criticism. That happens now when we think of some of the big films that are opening this summer you know, there's more scrutiny if it's a, a big sequel or a big remake and Star Wars The Force Awakens, everyone was talking about, well, what if it's going to be this and what if it's going to be that? The scrutiny is enormous. So this was Ray's biggest film in every sense. 
it was the biggest cast, the biggest budget, the most special effects, and so on, as we've talked about. So it's not that surprising then that the criticism came bigger and 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 more hurtful in some ways too. I've had films, I've had a couple of films shown in cinemas at different times, and it is interesting how the response from reviewers and established reviewers have a real effect on how people view the film at the cinema. So I've been lucky to have a couple of very good four-star reviews from the Radio Times, for which I'm very grateful. Um, Jeremy Aspinall came to see a couple of my movies, and I know he's a friend of the Foundation. He's one of the great reviewers at Radio Times. Um, When I look back at the history of Radio Times, when I used to get it at Christmas time and I'd look through to see my favourite films, sometimes in Radio Times and TV Times, reviews were a bit unkind. And at the time, Clash of the Titans might have been described something along the lines of this, you know, uh, a dull monster movie with um, well-known theatrical British types wandering around in bathrobes. Um, that's it. Now, if you pick up uh, a copy of the brilliant Radio Times film guide, you'll see that Clash of the Titans is described, you know, in glowing terms as a classic piece of filmmaking <laughs> with a great cast and terrific monsters. So it's interesting that from those people who are watching films in the 70s and 80s as children, they've now become the filmmakers and the established editorial view um, in, in publications and online. So it's lucky for Ray that he lived long enough to see his films reassessed. They are now considered to be classics by every measure. And so some of the unkind and inaccurate reviews, even at a recent screening I went to, somebody said to me, oh, Bubo the Owl, that's just a copy of R2-D2, isn't it, with its clicks and wheezes? Because Clash of the Titans opens some four years after the first Star Wars film. Well, yes, you could consider it like that, but when you realise the timeline for this film, it had been written in the early 70s, long before Star Wars, so the idea of a clockwork owl, an animated clockwork owl, was already well established by, by Ray... Ray Harryhausen and Charles Schneer. So it was already something that was planned. So I think it's unfair to suggest that, you know, Ray looked at Star Wars and thought, oh yeah, I'll have myself an R2-D2 here. What can we what can we do to mechanise um, one of the creatures? That's simply not the case. Well, I have to say, you criticise Bubo at your peril because Ray Harryhausen fans love Bubo the Owl. And, uh, you know, all of Ray's creatures are very popular on our social media accounts, but... Nothing compares to... If you put Bubo in a picture or a story about Bubo or any anything related to that character, we get a tremendous response every time from people sending in... People sending in tattoos of Bubo the Owl. People sending in their stories about how much they love that character, uh, models they've made themselves. So I think, I think a lot of people who maybe aren't massive Ray Harryhausen fans misunderstand that character. A lot of the critics don't understand the character, don't understand that this was a concept that was created before R2-D2 and before Star Wars and it's something, regardless of that that a lot of people grew up loving and just think it's a fantastic character and yeah, Bubo the Owl is um, I would say is probably in the top three of, of most popular. He might not be as famous out with um, the circle of Ray Harryhausen fans but those who do love Bubo are very protective and, and will not will not stand any criticism of him No, absolutely and uh, are we getting Bubo the Owl tattoos, Connor? I've already got one, John I'll, I'll, show, I'll show it it's, it's just under my Iron Maiden tattoo I've got uh, Iron Maiden and, and Bubo uh, Well, I, I'm going to add it to my Children of the Hydra's Teeth tattoo I have across my back so 
Excellent. Yeah, that's, that's, that's going to be good. I thought that was a part of working for the foundation. You had to get the official tattoo, the uh, the, the the boo-boo logo, just to, to show that you're you're in the inner circle. We are. We will be. We'll be conserved, won't we? We'll be part of the official collection at some stage. We'll hold the door open at at, uh, at the exhibits inside a glass case. That that yeah. That's 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 how I see my future. That sounds good. Um. But yeah. So, so Bubu, you know, it's interesting. You know, we've mentioned in previous podcasts that the kind of films that we like and the, the kind of films that Ray liked, they weren't always admired by critics. And as I said before, I learned at a young age just to ignore what critics say because. When you like something, you just you know that you're right, and the critics don't understand it. And eventually, they always come round. When something's unpopular at the time, but it's got genuine worth and genuine merit, thirty years later, everybody pretends that they loved it all along. But it must have been quite hurtful for Ray when he'd invested so much of himself for three years to see someone dismiss it like that. It's easy for us to say, "Oh well, it doesn't matter. Critics don't know what they're talking about." But when you've literally like put so much blood and sweat and tears into into a project. It must have been quite frustrating to see someone just cast it aside in that fashion, um, and I'm not saying that this is the reason that Ray retired. I don't think I don't think he would ever let someone's criticism put him off his work, but it must have been quite frustrating for him. So it's great to see, as you say, in the decades after Clash of the Titans was released, him kind of being um, justified in his in his beliefs because he was really lauded. People told him for the rest of his life how much of an influence the films had on them. Yes, and you know the the other thing, the important thing to understand here is that Clash of the Titans was a major box office hit. I mean, by every imaginable measure, it made more money in Europe than Raiders of the Lost Ark did. So just think about that for the moment. The first Indiana Jones film, which opened in 1981, made less money than Clash of the Titans did in Europe. So they both were big hits. They were both fabulous movies. It just shows you how significant Clash of the Titans was in terms of it being a money machine. It took um, in in US rentals, as they call it, that's US box office. It took forty one million dollars, um, and with a budget of fifteen million, that's pretty impressive. It would have taken a comparable amount throughout the rest of the world. You then have VHS and television sales and so on. It probably ranks as Ray's most successful film by every measure. Um, financially. So I think the criticism is all the more stinging when you've clearly made something which is a commercial hit par excellence. You know, it's a gold star um, box office smash. And yet people are sneering. Um, And I think that's what it is. You know, some of the reviews when you look back now are sneering reviews. Um, And it's very easy to sneer at somebody else's work. And I'm not somebody who criticises critics. I think they're a, a very important part of our cultural life. I'm not just saying that because I want good reviews, but I think they are. I mean, I think what critics say often reflect what society thinks at different times. And and society is often on the wrong side of history at different times with decisions it makes. So I think it's certainly relevant and I think it's important that we discuss it and we're open and honest about it. Um, but Ray was a um, a very decent man who didn't speak ill of other people. If he didn't have something nice to say, he wouldn't say anything at all and I think that's why he was so beloved so I think it does it does become um, hurtful but something which is true and something I think we need to talk about is this aspect of Clash of the Titans and it's something that's always bothered me since the film was released Clash had a massive budget so it should have looked um, sharp and um, impressive and in certain sequences the film looks very grainy as if it's been shot on a different format like 16mm instead of 35mm 
and some of the sequences, the colour balance from shot to shot doesn't work, it doesn't match. Now, Ray wasn't entirely happy with the laboratory that was used at the time, Metro Colour. It wasn't where he normally had his rushes done, he had them done at Rank and Technicolor. And if you look at some of the sequences in Ray's previous film to that, uh, Sinbad and the Eye of the Tiger, although it's not everyone's favourite film, the if you like, the picture resolution is much sharper throughout and consistent throughout. The colour balance, if you like, is consistent throughout. Whereas in Clash of the Titans, there are some um, jarring sequences where um, there's a very high level of grain on the background plates or just from shot to shot where there isn't animation, there's there's odd colour indifferences and imbalances. Now, the film didn't get, did get a Blu-ray release around 2010 when the remake of Clash of the Titans came out which Ray was not involved with. Now that Blu-ray release in high definition um, the film wasn't fully restored it still didn't look its best it had standard surround stereo sound so not a 5.1 mix there were no new extras on that so we would ask Warner Brothers if you are listening we would very much like to work with you on a new version of Clash of the Titans using some of the resources, or all of the resources, of the Ray Harryhausen Foundation, the full commentary track that's been recorded by the Foundation, and we'd like to see a full restoration of the film, because I think it's it's an asset for Warner Brothers, and it's certainly a cultural asset in terms of filmmaking and animation legacy. Um, how do you feel, Connor, when you watch that? You're, you're a... You're, slightly younger person than me so you'd be more used to seeing things pin sharp in high definition what do you think about the overall look of the film given that it was so expensive no i do i know the scenes that you mean immediately there's a couple of the calabos scenes and the scorpion scenes in particular where it does jump to a much grainier uh much grainier style i you know it doesn't jar with me as much i guess because i'm looking at these films from a distance and um I appreciate that they're a bit older than me. <laughs> the, the the thing is that we, as you say before, have so many fantastic resources within the Foundation. We know exactly what Ray thought about these sequences and we know exactly which sections of the film that he was unhappy with. And I believe you spoke to Ray uh, before about whether he would remaster the film and he said that he would be happy to remaster certain aspects of the movie. The original version is still available but it would be fantastic if some of these uh, errors could be rectified uh, and, and restored. I think it's just a case of there being so much animation in the film that before if there was a problem with a short sequence um, Ray could focus all of his efforts on that one sequence and when when you're working on a film for three years Eventually, there I guess there comes a point where all the pressures build up, where Ray would have been under pressure from outside sources to, to wrap up, and he wouldn't have had all the time in the world to complete it. Um, is, is this what happened with the scorpion scene in particular? I think there was the, there were some issues with the lighting, which Ray was never quite satisfied with. That's right. For the background plates of the scorpion attack on Perseus and his his uh, his followers. Um, it started to rain, which was not good. And also there was some movements on the background plates as well. Now, I'm not sure if this was a problem with the developing of the film and there was a bit of movement in the gates or whether the location camera moved. Now, he did ask Charles Schneer if he could have one more day and Charles Schneer said no. And they sort of doggedly stuck to the schedule. Ray knew then that um, this sequence wasn't going to cut together as, as well as he wanted it to. And I wonder to what extent that pressure might have been one of the final straws because you know it's a 
often a strange relationship between a filmmaker and a producer and having worn both hats myself simultaneously I know how how it is to be pulled in both directions it's easy for me to say in retrospect Ray should have been given another day but actually it's Charles Schneer's sort of steady hand that made all of these films possible for us so there is a possibility to go back but the assets we need are the original camera rushes ideally and if not the uh, the interpositive but um, some of these effects were a were a result of filters that um, Desmond Davis, the director, insisted on using, and I know that Ray wasn't um, always um, on board with those decisions. So I think it's um, it's in it's about time we had a, a fully restored and remastered version. And as I say, we'd love to work with Warner Brothers because it's one of their marvelous assets, which um, we'd like to help them preserve for future generations. And it's. Um, it's something which is which is still current in terms of a business proposition. We can't talk in this podcast without mentioning the 2010 Clash of the Titans remake. Um, there are some very, very strong views out there. We're not necessarily going to reflect those, but um, we will talk a little bit about Ray's involvement or not with that film. But um, Connor, what's your take on, on the remake? It has um, a pretty good cast, doesn't it? Yes, I mean, I'm going to be honest, and this might not be a popular view, this... Uh this is my own view and not the view of the foundation but I don't think that the remake is completely terrible I, I, I don't mind taking it for what it is which is a CGI film I think in years to come these uh, these films such as Clash of the Titans 2010 Wrath of the Titans the Conan the Barbarian remake with Jason Momoa and I think the, the most recent one is Gods of Egypt with uh, Gerard Butler they're going to be viewed in a specific context because computer effects are, are getting so good now. The recent Jungle Book, for example, it, it's so realistic. You would never imagine that the entire film was created on, on computer with one human character. So if you think about how these films are going to look in 40 or 30 years' time, they're going to look so dated. For that reason, they're going to have their place in time. I guess in much the same fashion that the... The Italian sword and sandals films look to us now just just quite dated and in their own way quite charming because because a lot of these CGI epics are like watching somebody play the PlayStation you know with all their graphics and all their motion around it's a specific type of filmmaking that I would imagine is going to go out of fashion very very soon with the developments in technology but for that reason I think as you mentioned it's got a fantastic cast it's got Pete Postlesweet got uh, Liam Neeson got Ralph Fiennes got so many fantastic actors I suppose reflective of the original from 1981 just a you know well-respected actors of their time and it's just trying to tell the story in a new way some of it's successful some of it's not so successful as I mentioned earlier there's a scene where Boobo the Owl is kind of made fun of and cast aside and that I think is the reason you know make fun of Boobo at your peril because some fans will just not watch the film because they're aware of that scene or some fans have seen it once and just will not give it the time of day because they've seen Boobo they're all being treated so badly I think the reason behind this I would I would like to think it wasn't anything malicious I think it was maybe just somebody falling victim to this modern tendency of treating everything ironically not taking anything seriously and making everything into an in-joke and thinking oh you know 
fans of the original are going to love this. This is going, this is going to raise a chuckle. And it, it spectacularly backfired because that scene is so controversial. And I don't think I've ever seen anybody say that they like that. I think if people want to see Bubo in a film, they want to see him being, treat, being treated with respect. Uh, they made up for it slightly. They slightly mitigated it in uh, the sequel, Wrath of the Titans, which featured Bubo again as a... I guess as a kind of idol or a, or, a, or a kind of god at some point, but people just were, were upset and they, they felt that that was, a, I guess, a reflection of not treating Ray's work with the f- full respect that it deserved and they saw that as symbolic of this, uh, this, this remake, which I think actually, from what I've read, some of the writers of that film were actually big fans of the original Clash of the Titans and were just trying to process it for 21st century audiences, but... There was definitely a few big missteps. I know the other problem with the 2010 film is that they, they rushed into making the film, film 3D and as such made a complete mess of it and it was actually making people feel quite ill in the cinema watching it because there's so much action going on, the 3D had been done wrong and it was just making people feel sick. Yeah, they retrofitted the 3D, so um, it wasn't actually shot in, in full three dimensions, but uh, it was retrofitted. In an attempt, I suppose, to uh, to scoop up some of the extra dollars that people will pay if they if they see a film in three D, um, it's interesting. You know, when when we look at remakes, if we look at a very successful remake, which effectively the Force Awakens was, it was a remake of the first Star Wars film. They did it very successfully. There was a you know they they kind of tipped their hat to the past. There were some great characters and and it and it felt new because there was new characters too. So as much as they say it's a sequel, I, th- I think it's as much a remake of of uh, a New Hope as anything else. Um, with Clash of the Titans, it is highly controversial. As you say, as a film, it's fine. Um, the um, company making the film for Warner Brothers was in touch with Ray at the time and talked about using Boo Bo the Owl and. The terms weren't able to be agreed, so I suspect that's why the sequence was used where Bubo was literally thrown away as a piece of junk. I think their perception might have been that Bubo the Owl was the Jar Jar Binks of the Harryhausen creature world. Now, making that wrong assumption, every step they took after that then was also a wrong assumption, that the fans would love it if Bubo was tossed into the trash. And of course... No, they didn't. He's not the Jar Jar Binks of the Harryhausen world. There's only one Jar Jar Binks, and that's over at Lucastown. So there was talk on the internet that Jar Jar Binks would appear in The Force Awakens and he gets a bullet or something, and people were saying that would be great and so on. The wrong steps that Bubo sort of created amongst fandom didn't affect the film's box office. It went on to be a very big hit. There was a sequel... Uh, Wrath of the Titans, which did okay business, you know, didn't lose money. But um, I think, as you say, it is a case of, you know, interfering with people's childhood memories at your peril. And I think, you know, animators that I work with now today say to me, geez, you know, the work on on that Clash of the Titans looks very dated and they can kind of recognise some of the software they're using. That's that's just um, a case of, of technology moving forward, you know, and Although it might be hard to imagine the film being described as a classic in years to come, I don't think it's an in, a total failure. Um, but people I know who hadn't seen either film had seen both. Um, somebody who was working with me at the time watched the new shiny 3D 2010 Clash of the Titans in the cinema, then watched the Blu-ray version of Ray's film and said, oh, actually, I much preferred Ray's film. My mind was wandering during the new one and... It's um, it's interesting, you know, there is certain charm about the way 
Ray's films work and and magic too you know we're here talking about it you're there listening to it on on your iPods and everything else and there's a foundation this isn't just because you know Ray liked the sound of his own voice or because a couple of fanboys thought it's something to do on a Saturday afternoon this is a significant movement amongst people who love films who love fantasy cinema and we get requests all the time wanting to speak about Ray's work um, one of the other stories that um, we don't want to uh, um, leave the podcast without telling you is the interesting story around Mattel toys and the Star Wars style figures that have been created for Clash of the Titans. Do you know much about that, Sir Connor? I've no. I know that the the magazine Famous Monsters of Filmland recently did a sh- short article about the merchandising for Clash of the Titans. Obviously, a lot of the dolls and the models and things are now very highly sought after collectors models and I know there was a very extensive range of figures from the film including some supporting characters such as uh, Talo the the captain of the guard and Charon the grim reaper that sails to, to Medusa's island so I know there was an extensive merchandising for the film but there was a little controversy around it as well wasn't there? There was yes I mean I'm pleased to say I have all of the pieces now but not all of them in boxes when I was looking to purchase, as I always was. Anytime I went shopping, I was always looking to purchase a figure from the movie or a robot. <laughs> so I was one of those kids that's always, always asking mum and dads, can I buy something? You know, I want a toy and so on. Certain toy shops um, at the time were literally divided down the middle. It was girls' toys on one side, boys' toys on another. Kitty City was one of the chains that was fabulous for boys' toys and girls' toys. And you go into a store like Kitty City, and all on the left-hand side, it would all be boys' toys like Action Man and, and all of the Star Wars range. Now, as Star Wars really got into its stride for The Empire Strikes Back, and there was lots of toys, and, and even figures that had only been seen sort of briefly in the background, such as uh, the droids from the Jawa Sandcrawler and so on, were suddenly being released... Um, there was no space for Clash of the Titans toys in Kitty City. But interestingly, there was no space for the Battlestar Galactica figures or the Buck Rogers in the 25th century figures. And it's my understanding from speaking to people that had worked with Mattel and worked with Palatoy and Kinnear at the time, that how it worked was if you had a toy shop and you were receiving all of the top new Star Wars figures, then you were obviously getting what's called a footfall of traffic of young people who were keen to spend their money. So to try and keep a stranglehold on the shelf space, you would sometimes sign an agreement whereby you wouldn't take on any other action figures other than Star Wars ones. And to be honest, if you're a shopkeeper in the late 70s and early 80s, that's all you're going to be selling to boys anyway. So a 99p or £1.50 for a, for a C-3PO or a Jawa um, would be the sort of retail price. So where did all of the other toys go to? Well, the only other place that was able to supply shelf space were stationers such as W.H. Smiths, who would sell magazines, books, ink, paper, all the kind of dull stuff that you might have at school. They would be selling some of the other action figures, such as Clash of the Titans and perhaps Battlestar Galactica. But they'd be selling them at a much higher price, at a, a, a retail price of £2.99. I mean, in dollars, that's that's nearly, um, in 80s rate, nearly $5 per figure. So, of course, they weren't as, as popular because there wasn't as much advertising around them. There wasn't all of the enormous series of characters and other collectibles and vehicles. So 
Poor old Clash of the Titans figures withered on the vine. Now, I said to Ray back in 2012 about the figures. He said, oh, John, they were a big failure for us. And I said, oh, why did you say? I discussed with him the Mattel story. He wasn't aware that there was this sort of restrictive trade practice that was imposed upon the Clash of the Titans figures. Um, and that actually I tried to seek them out where I could. Now, of course, if you go onto eBay and other auction sites, you can find in their original blister packets, which means the card and the little plastic bubble in front, you know, over $100 in some cases and more for the figures. There's a large size Kraken. There's a Pegasus, which was based on an existing toy range for a, for a pony, I think, for um, a girl's... Um, I think it was for Barbie. For There's a Barbie mould that the Pegasus was based on. Um, and, of course, Calabos and, and, and that large Kraken. There was a playset planned. But there was also, interestingly, having done a bit of Mattel research, a Bubo the Owl that was full-size and clockwork, um, for which in the Mattel archive there is a sort of a prototype, but that never came to market because of disappointing sales on the figures because they couldn't find the shelf space. So Ray was delighted to hear that the figures have now found an audience in the markets. And, in fact, the... Um, if it were, the, the, the success of Star Wars slightly strangled at birth the um, Mattel toy range for Clash of the Titans, which um, which is an interesting story because Mattel turned down <laughs> the Star Wars figures in the mid-70s and Kinnear in America and Palatoy here in the UK became the, uh, the distributors and manufacturers. So I think Mattel was always playing catch-up with other films and other toys to try and recapture the, um, the mistake. Um, but they didn't do it. But that's the story of, of Mattel and the action figures for um, for Clash of the Titans. Have you got any of them, Connor, in your bedroom on your windowsill? No, but within the collection, there's a couple of the items which have managed to survive. We have we have the Kraken model here from Mattel, which is a uh, you know it's, it's a lot of fun. I don't play with it because obviously it's part of the collection. I keep it safe. It's interesting to look at these things. So you're saying you have them all now, John. So did you have the Bubble the Owl mask and the the blow up Pegasus rocking horse and all, all these other things, or was it just the dolls that you managed to get hold of? No, just just the action figures. I have got various Bubo the Owls, but none from the original Mattel lineup. Um, no, I don't have the inflatable. Nice. And it's interesting what you say about them maybe not making as much money as these invidious because in a recent interview, Harry Hamlin claimed that he made more money from merchandising than he did from the film. So maybe maybe things did better over over the sea, or Harry Hamlin had a special deal. Maybe that's why my Ray didn't realise quite how much money they were they were making from. Them. I don't know if that was just Harry Hamlin being a little cheeky, uh, but it's, it's interesting looking back because this merchandise to me now it looks like the kind of presents you would open on Christmas morning, like the the style of doll. They they are very much. Uh, action figures uh, in the style of the Star Wars ones, they're not exact replicas of the film. There was also a big publicity push for the film and there's a novelisation by Alan Dean Foster. And I know that it used to be common practice for novelizations of films to come out but this one I think is probably a bit of a cut above because Alan Dean Foster is a famous fantasy writer but he also wrote a lot of the Star Wars extended universe uh, including Splinter of the Mind's Eye, which was, was just going to be plan B for a sequel to, well, the original Star Wars, A New Hope. If it didn't make as much money as they thought it would, they were going to make a low-budget sequel called Splinter of the Mind's Eye, which was a book by Alan Dean Foster. So again, there's you know there's a, there's a novelisation which, uh, which was probably of a higher standard than most 
And these, these are all things I think people look back now with some nostalgia because you can't imagine a film coming out now with, with a, a massive merchandise. And even, even the, the remake that we just spoke about, there was a lot of merchandise and, and toys and dolls and things for that. And it's, it's become so ingrained into any kind of fantasy or sci-fi or horror fandom for people to want these replicas that it seems strange at a time back in the early 80s that this was just an industry in its infancy. Absolutely. You know, now if you want something, you don't have to go to that toy shop. You can go online. Um, the, you know, the, the toys that are made for adults like us, although it seems like it's just me buying them. Uh, Gentle Giant, of course, is one of the uh, the best ones on the market who make um, Star Wars figures. They, they, they make what's called jumbo Star Wars figures. So I have on my desk here a jumbo size R5-D4 and a jumbo size uh, Death Star droid. So, um, you know, they are um, 12-inch high figures that have been scanned from the original small versions. They've been made jumbo size. Um, there's a really big market for high-quality top-end figures because people have more money now. They have a, a larger income to spend. That's why we all end up with these massive storage units we pay thousands for every year. They're, f- they're chucked full of, of fabulous toys. Um, and we hope, you know, in in the coming years, there might be some interesting uh, merchandise possibilities with um, with Ray's collection. We uh, we do know that um, there's some fabulous uh, Talos stuff in the pipeline, isn't there, Connor, from uh, Jason and the Argonauts? Yes, absolutely. I mean, it's one of the most common questions that we get. You know, when when can we get merchandise? When are there going to be replicas of Ray's? creatures and, and creations um, I guess the answer is that we want to make sure we do it right we want any merchandise that's made from Ray's materials to be of the highest possible quality which is why we'd rather wait and make sure it's done right speaking of which we have a partnership with Raven Armories who are making these fantastic bronze replicas of Talos and now there's three models available there's the original Talos standing as he is in the film, standing upright. They've got a new model called Talos Awakes, which is created from the scene where Talos is kneeling and then turns round. Probably one of the most famous scenes in, in any of Ray's movies is when Talos wakes up and t- turns his neck slowly with that creaking noise. I think my favourite, strangely enough, is the third model, which is Talos Frozen in Time. And that is Talos as he is now. What Raven Armouries did is took a 3D scan of the Talos model as he is in... Well, it was I think it was 2013 that they did this. So he's obviously decayed a little. There's there's deterioration naturally through through latex deterioration, and they they've created a bronze replica based on the model as it looks today. And I think it looks fantastic. Um, it really looks like a piece of something something archaeological, something really just fantastically uh, arcane about it. But these three models have been created by. Raven Armouries, using the original models, using the original moulds. They're fantastic pieces of art. They're bronze, real labour of love by Raven Armouries. And we'll be having some more information on our Facebook and Twitter site soon about the process that goes into making these because they are not, you know, they're not mass-produced. They're, they're created by some of the country's best blacksmiths and they really are putting their blood, sweat and tears into these statues and you can tell when you look at them they're made with real quality, they're works of art in themselves. So when you describe it, I'm I'm picturing Pat Roach from Clash of the Titans forging um, Boobo the Owl in, um, in an Olympian sort of uh, iron forge. It sounds like that sort of uh, setup, yeah. doesn't it? 
If you can picture that and the Minotaur scene from Eye of the Tiger where Winneton's being forged, uh, this is a bit like that. This is what I'm hoping the behind the scenes pictures that, that Raven Armory are going to release very soon. We're going to be posting them on our Facebook and we're going to be telling the story step by step of how these models are created through the, the 3D laser scanning and everything else that they do. Uh, the bronze the bronze casting um, you know these behind the scenes pictures are going to be so interesting and I can imagine yeah well, these blacksmiths with a huge hammer and fire everywhere that's fabulous and just to keep everyone up to date on other merchandise that's coming down the tracks incidentally the foundation isn't always involved with merchandise um, but we do like to mention ones that we particularly like or endorse certainly in the case of Raven Arm we, we like and endorse and uh, we'd also like and endorse the the books of Mike Hankin and, and he's um, got a, a reprint of some of his Master of Magic series. And it's a series of um, deluxe three-volume hardcover books. Um, uh, to say they're about Ray Harryhausen is not to give them their sort of... They're, 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 just, um, they're just desserts, really, because it, they really are a sort of a definitive three-volume um, magnum opus of Ray's work, fabulous behind-the-scenes shots, interviews that Mike Hankin has has researched and 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 discovered himself. So he's found lots of amazing um, anecdotes and information, and it's really just you know a wonderful series. You can you can find out more at um, archive-editions.com or again on our Facebook page. We we're mentioning about the. Um, the uh, special limited edition reprints that are available with uh, slipcases. Perfect gifts, but also perfect for yourself. So, uh, you know, don't feel uh, guilty in treating yourself. We, you know, we need to uh, to uh, to spread the love, as they say. You, you've seen these books, uh, Connor, haven't you? They're pretty fabulous. Yeah, well, I've seen the original, the original books, which are now being expanded upon and reprinted, but they're fantastic. They're a real grimoire of just knowledge and uh, information about the films, things that you you wouldn't expect to find out about interviews with people that you'd never expect to hear from, from throughout Ray's career all the way back to the early days through to Clash of the Titans and beyond. And yeah, Mike Hankin has done a fantastic job. They complement the books that Ray wrote during his lifetime. There's The Art of Ray Harryhausen and Ray Harryhausen and Animated Life and a a few more as well that are are brilliant. And these books complement each other perfectly because Mike Hankin's books are really... I guess a fan's dream come true when you when you delve into them, all these nuggets of information and they're really as as uh, as with the Raven Armory works, they're real works of quality. They're worth waiting for. The you know the reprints are coming soon. They're worth saving up for and waiting for because if you're a fan of Ray Harryhausen, you would not be disappointed by these Master of Magic books. They're something you could probably delve into for the rest of your life and find something new every time. And small credit to the foundation, and it is a very small credit because Mike's made these books possible himself 100%, but we've contributed in a very, very small way by offering up some of the new information around the memorial service that was held for Ray. And uh, yes, we'd urge people to to support Mike and his books. And uh, I think we, we're pretty much coming to the end now, Connor, aren't we, of our special Clash of the Titans 35th anniversary special. I think so. I think with a film like Clash of the Titans, as as we've said before, we have so much in way of resources and with items and objects relating to the film that we we could turn this into a, a ten part series because there's so much to talk about. So we'll maybe do a follow up one day because it's a film you could talk all day about. As we said, it's packed to the rafters with animation, packed with with stars, with stories. It took so long to make. There's so many behind the scenes tales that. Uh, we just hope that everyone's enjoyed listening to us uh, talking about it because it's been really interesting to explore all the various aspects of what has become a legendary film. 
Absolutely. And uh, one of the things that people often ask us, and I certainly think it's something that we can have a discussion about if there's a re-release of the film, um, are there any deleted scenes? Are there sequences that didn't make it? Well, here's a little audio clip from a documentary I made when I was a, a very young film student in 1989, where Ray discusses um, alternative um, footage that exists of Pegasus, the flying horse. The flying horse was very difficult because uh, everybody is familiar with the movements of a horse. And so we kept the movements limited as much as possible. But uh, the very fact that the horse has wings, you have to imagine how a creature of that nature would uh, move in the air. Uh, we tried shooting tests of it with just the legs hanging and the wings flapping, and it looked very... Uh, uh, uninteresting. So we had to give it sort of a galloping appearance to keep everything in motion. So there you go. We haven't found that footage yet, but um, when we do, we will certainly try and get it scanned and get it released. And, uh, you know, that just adds to the adds to the legacy, really, of Ray's work. I think it would be fabulous. Even though the legs were hanging and the wings were flapping, I think it would be a fascinating experiment in the uh, in the sort of timeline and chronology of uh, of Ray's work. I thought now Connor perhaps if we finish off with uh, rather than leaving the final word to Ray we'd leave the final word to um, to Zeus himself with his sign off from Clash of the Titans. How does that sound? Yeah who else who else is more appropriate to finish off this show than Lawrence Olivier himself Zeus uh, so we'll let him lead us out of the show. Perseus and Andromeda will be happy together. Have fine sons, rule wisely, and to perpetuate the story of his courage, I command that from henceforth he will be set among the stars and constellations. He, Perseus, the lovely Andromeda, the noble Pegasus, and even the vain Cassiope. Let the stars be named after them forever. As long as man shall walk the earth and search the night sky in wonder, they will remember the courage of Perseus forever. Even if we, the gods, are abandoned or forgotten, the stars will never fade. Never. They will burn till the end of time. Copyright in the Ray Harryhausen podcast is owned by the Ray and Diana Harryhausen Foundation, a registered Scottish charity, number SC001419, 2016. This recording may not be reproduced in whole or in part without written permission from the Foundation. The views expressed within these podcasts do not necessarily reflect those of the Foundation, its trustees or employees. For further terms and conditions, please contact us at rayharryhausen.com where you can also find our Facebooks and Twitter links. <laughs>